right. Well, look, again, welcome to the Transportation and Logistics Podcast, powered by Atlanta Dispatch and Humblebee Enterprises. I'm very excited to be here with a special guest. We have Michael Darden, who is the founder of DFM DataCorp. And before we begin, The Dispatcher's Guide to the Galaxy is available now as an ebook and a physical book. And you can acquire your copy online from Barnes and Nobles and, you know, maybe even Amazon if that's your persuasion. And if you're interested in an ebook, you can get it from Apple Books and any other place you would get your ebooks. And, uh, Michael, thank you again for joining me, brother. Um, just to get started, can you please give us a, a brief introduction? And I really just want to learn how did you get into logistics? So, hey, Jory, thanks for having me on today. I, I got into logistics at a really, really early age. When I was about 10 years old, my uncle owned an auto parts store, and I think that was the babysitter for me from 10 until 15. So I kind of learned how to unpack the trucks and restock the shelves and uh, have been doing supply chain and logistics work ever since, uh, in increasingly with more and more technology. Okay, I love it, man, and thank you again. I, I truly appreciate it. Look, and if I'm not mistaken, you have a couple of patents. You know, describe what they are. What do, what do they address? So my patent is related to dynamic and predictive matching of capacity to loads. Of, of shipments to drivers, tractors, and trailers using either handheld devices or TMS-like uh, technology for uh, affecting the matches between uh, drivers and tractors and trailers and loads. Okay. So can be using GPS, but doesn't have to be. It can be uh, any of what we would typically call DFMs today. Right, right, right. And I guess just to put it in layman's terms, like, do you have any examples or any, uh, how, what's the most relevant use case um, so, in today's market? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, you get visibility of your, your, your pizza when you, you call and order it and it comes from directly, you know, when it's coming out of the oven and where it's going. When, when you call for an Uber, you have visibility to the capacity that's there. Uh, my patent was related to that sort of matching but instead of with pizza or with passengers, with trucks and freight. Okay. Yeah, I like that analogy that I, I can clearly visualize what you got going on. And, you know, I know that you said that you came from a lineage where you had a family member who was a, a business owner. Do you feel like that's what gave you the inspiration to even pursue building a patent? Because that's not a normal thing. You know what I mean? You're the first patent holder I've interviewed. So, <laughs> <laughs> so the, the work that I did really young was was pretty much grunt work. I mean, my, my, my uncles in New York were pretty tough on me. And I, I got my hands really dirty doing a lot of that work. My my, my opportunity to be able to kind of get to this vision of the Olympics came or, or of the, the patent came to me during the Olympics. In 1996 here in Atlanta, we were awarded the Olympics and there were some uh, 57 venues that were being set up and I was hired to be the operations manager for Coca-Cola to be able to set up the the ingestion of the the tables and chairs and coolers and product and distribute it out to the 57 different venues. The cool part about this was in 1995, uh, the, the technology of the day was a pager. Uh, if you wanted to get somebody, you would page them and it would go beep, beep, beep. And 
there, there was a phone number there and you would have to go find a pay phone to be able to call them. Um, that, that's 95. That was cutting edge technology. But uh, Nextel came out with these push to talk radio sort of connectivity devices and they tested them during the Olympics and they equipped the entire Coca-Cola Olympic operations team with these devices. So having that sort of first time, real time availability with all of my drivers and, and uh, people that were dispatching them and the people that were expecting the freight uh, at the, the locations gave me a visibility like I had never had before. And I was like, so I think if everybody had one of these devices, it'll change the world. And it took about six years after that before I wrote the first draft of the patent. Okay. Well, no, I love it, man. I love it. You definitely take what life gives you and you digest it and get out what you can. So I appreciate you for sharing that. Uh, for everybody, look, I had a, all parties involved with the freight transaction. Access to the details remains in full effect. And although, you know, just like I told you, I haven't gone and dissected the final ruling on the independent dispatch agency and, you know, all those things that pertain to it. I was led to believe that uh, the FMCSA is in favor of allowing independent dispatch agencies to work on behalf of multiple MCs, but does not allow the allocation of freight to occur without a brokerage authority. Did you take anything else from it or, you know, let me hear your thoughts. So um, it's, it's, uh, it is a little bit hair splitting, right? And, and I think what, uh, what the FMCSA recognized from the last round of, of comments was, was that there needed to be a little bit more clarity and decision making and uh, making the determination of, of if there's a monetary engagement and uh, doing dispatch services for different companies it has has got a lot of terms with a lot of different rough around the edges definitions that they used some examples from the comments that they received to be able to really kind of frame this and if you had a direct relationship with a carrier that you have a conversation with them and you enter a contract with them and they service just the state of georgia and you do work with them just in the state of georgia but you have another carrier that you work with that's up in the northeast and they don't go out of the Northeast, you can actually have a, a dispatcher relationship with each of those entities and it wouldn't be considered overlapping or differentiating between them because they have different geographical markets. Right, right, right. So look, I mean, I'm happy that there was some clarity. There's gonna be a lot to iron out with that just because of how different operation styles can be. Um, well, and, and this is nothing enforceable, right? I mean, they make it clear inside of this same, uh, you know, federal registry announcement of what, what took place that there's no new enforcement that is coming from this. I mean, it, th this is not like there's something that, it's just clarification. And th they're trying to be able to make it so that there is a, where are the lines painted on the field to be able to, to play? up to date and definitely knowledgeable on all of these issues because these are the things i love to talk about as far as your perspective do you remember any noteworthy differences in the uh the fines that a freight brokerage would face for violating that transparency law you know what i mean because there there are some fines you know but i think it was a distinct shift at what, like 2018 or something? That's exactly right. So, so what, what actually happened was when this law was first passed for, for transparency, there, there was a, a, a corresponding penalty for not being able to comply with it. 
and it was $200 for the first incidence and $250 for additional instances afterwards. If you were found uh, to, to have, have, have not complied with this, which means somebody would have had to complain, somebody would have had to investigate, and you would have had to, to been found guilty of being able to do that. And right now, there's really not anybody that's out there policing that. So most companies just went, well, I mean, you know, I can speed here. There's no, no speed traps and there's no police along the side of the road. So they, they flex the rules a little bit. And but before you know it, we, we've, we've got, um, you know, some, some un, unregulated, unlawful uh, choices that are being made. And I think the, the intent is to try to be able to, to, to let people know what the rules are again, because it's gone for about 40 years without anybody really minding the store. Just to go a little bit beyond that, our topic today is about ending phantom load board posts, right? First, what are phantom posts for those who have never heard of them in that language? Sure. So, so a phantom, phantom can actually happen on both sides of the equation, on the carrier side and on the shipper side. If a, a, an owner operator is in Louisville, Kentucky, and goes on one load board and identifies that he's available in this location of Louisville, Kentucky, and he's wanting to be able to go in one direction, he can go on another load board with another profile and be able to identify himself as capacity that's looking to leave from Louisville and go someplace else. And that's two capacities that are out there for the same driver. And when that driver gets booked, that oftentimes doesn't remove the availability from the Louisville location for him because that's kind of cleanup work. And usually the owner operator is chasing down that opportunity or working with their dispatcher to be able to chase the, the, the living transaction. And uh, the phantom loads come in play when, when you've got, you know, a large provider that works with their normal carrier list but today they can't cover these 30 loads with their core carriers. So they, they broadcast out a list of their 30 loads that they're looking to get covered and they send it to 10 different load boards and 10 different brokers and they send it on to the eight or 10 different companies that they work with. And before you know it, the, the 30 loads looks like 300 loads throughout the entire marketplace. And Oftentimes the, the dispatchers that are working with the load boards are calling to be able to see is this load still real? Is it still available as the first qualifying step because of this multiple posting and phantom loads across the load boards? Gotcha. Thank you. That was a great uh, overview of that process and like what that actually looks like. For you, you have a very keen insight on what needs to happen in order for us to get to a, a society in existence where no phantom posts are found on the load board. Like what needs to happen in order for that to uh, be the reality? And I know that's a loaded question, so definitely take your time. <laughs> so, so thanks. So, so what needs to happen is that we all have to agree on the places that we can agree. And what, what, what is really happening here in, in every transportation transaction is there are some goods that will be available at some moment in time at an exact location to be transported from where they are to someplace else. And somebody is paying us to do that and they have a reference number. And those elements of the transaction are repeatable across every transaction. There are goods going to be at some known location at some point in time that need to be moved from there to some other location for some company with their reference number. And I repeat it because 
that information is the same available information on every load. And I believe that if we were to organize and and with meaning and purpose, create an identifier that was made up of those fields, we could communicate about a load and the status that it was progressing through. And I describe this as statuses because we have something that we call a goods movement process that is the status updates of a shipment. And it starts in a posted status where someone says, hey, I have these goods here and they need to be able to move someplace else and I have an authorized payer to be able to pay for this. Pre-booked is when there are some options that are identified. There are at least one way to be able to move the goods that are at this location to someplace else and to be able to say, I can fulfill this. Now there's some options. When is it gonna be available? What time do you need it to get there? Do you need two drivers or one, a refrigerated truck or a flatbed? All of those optionalities are there to be able to determine between that pre-booked and booked state. And booked is where you've now picked through all of the different providers that may have had notification of this and you've selected one. You've said, I'm, you're my, my person, I'm working with you. And at that moment in time, there really should be a way for the system to clean house and say, all right, so that shipment ID that everybody was looking at and thinking that they could fill in their, that one's no longer available. It has advanced to the point that the shipper has booked it with somebody and you shouldn't waste one moment of time on that. And after booking, there's a gap of time between then and appointment scheduling and the time that it actually gets picked up and then from picked up to delivered and then from delivered to invoiced and from invoiced to archived. And we look at those milestone steps of being the goods movement process statuses that with a unique identifier for the shipment and that three digit code, the parties that are involved in that transaction would know what's going on with it without having to exchange all of the, now where's your load coming from? What did you call it? Who's your customer? What? Let me cross-reference that to my number and find out what it is in my system. Yeah, I gotta go to this vendor's website and look it up to see what the tracking is. All of that would be removed if we as an industry could standardize on the identifier, what we call the TUID, the transport unit identifier. And we submitted a white paper on this about two years ago to the International Standards Organization and they came back to us and said, this is a really good idea. And if, if the industry adopted a standard of how to format, when are my goods gonna be available? Where are the goods going to be available? Where do they need to go to? Who is buying them? And what is their reference number? And adding a, a, a milestone status on the end, then the communications would be codified so that it would update the parties that needed to be updated. Oh, great, great, great. And look, you said a lot right there. And I definitely want to go through and talk about each individual point. But there was one thing that you mentioned the International Organization of Standardization, ISO. You know, for people who've never heard of them, you know, who don't know if they've ever heard of them, who is the ISO and why is the ISO, I'm not gonna say needed, but why would it really, really help if they were backing this situation right here? How would it really uh, allow us to get to the point where there were no 
phantom load board postings. So, so, so the International team. Standards Organization is governed not by cities or states or even countries or, or even, you know, a single country. It is multiple countries that come together and identify that this is what the international standard should be. So, for instance, there, there is a standard called ISO 8601. And ISO 8601 is the time and date stamp. And if you're communicating with people in Europe, they often put the day, then the month, then the year. But if you're working with people here in the United States, then it's the month, then the day, then the year. And we, we, we end up with, if you're having international communications that you're not using an ISO standard, you have May 6th could look like June 5th. And it's the same information is just formatted in a different order from what people are accustomed to doing. What ISO 8601 does is says, look, when you're transmitting data around time and date stamp, you use the format of year, the largest format first, then the month, then the day, then the, the, the hour, then the minute, then the second. And it creates a format that any computer system can take the format that's inputted in any local server of what my time is here and what I entered the appointment time in Eastern Standard Time to codify it so that it's at the date timeline of when the actual, so everybody everywhere on the entire planet can know the same time at the same time. That's a, a great breakdown. And when I lived abroad, that was definitely something that I noticed. And it was so peculiar to me. It's just like, oh, everybody doesn't put the, the date the same way that I've been doing my whole life in America. So let me ask this for the uh, transport unit identifier that you submitted to the ISO. Were you building on some of the other standards that they had already created? So what was kind of crazy was, was we were looking at this and going, so there's a problem. We need to have a unique identifier for every shipment. And, and that's really the root of this, is that every shipment needs to have a unique identifier. But do you make that so that it's meaningful, or do you try to randomize enough pieces together to be able to produce the, the, the random identifier for this? And we had a white paper by a professor written that basically described a hashing method. So if you're familiar with computers, when you write your password or type your password into the system, it doesn't save your password as you typed it in the database. It hashes it. It converts it to being different characters that are running through an algorithm so that somebody that looks in the database can't see exactly what your password is. It kind of works like a bit.ly. If you've got a really long link of a website and you want to be able to have a short link for it to be able to make it so users can you know, possibly type it in, it's the same sort of thing. It's hashing the same information to make it shorter and more condensed. And that's what our white paper proposed. And when the ISO read the white paper, they were like, so you're going to take country code and EIN number and address and concatenate them together and hash it. What if we had a standard that was for location? And what if we had a standard that was for company identifier? And what if we had a standard that was for the timestamp and we had a standard that would create the, the custom label for this? If we can, can put all those standards that are already existing together, we could make the TUID out of existing standards. So what the standard is, and, and I'll, I'll try to do this off the top of my head, but the, 
The ISO 8000-115 is the naming standard that allows for the ISO.TUID colon to be able to say, hey, look, if I'm using this prefix of this ISO.TUID colon, then immediately following that is going to be the time that the freight is available in ISO 8601, the location that the freight is available in ISO 8000-118, the location of where it's ultimately going to go to in ISO 8118, the company's name that actually is buying it in their codified ALEI, which is their authoritative legal entity identifier, and that's ISO 8000-116, and then their PO number or their bill of lading number, whatever it is that they're gonna recognize it at when we show up to say we're finishing our job, that's the number that goes at the very end of this. And immediately following that is the, the statuses. So those fields all came together from the existing ISO standards and we were like, well, could we still hash that? I mean, could we still make a bitly out of it? Could we still shorten it? And it was absolutely we could. And now you've got two different layers of a human readable text version of what the entire name of the freight movement is just in the identifier itself and the ability to hash that and make it so that somebody has a shortened version of it that is also globally unique. Right, right. Look, just from my background in computer information systems, I know when you're dealing with large data sets that having unique identifiers are keen. You know, you can't beat it when you're looking to find something really quickly if you need to reference something. And uh, the way that you guys are laying out this identifier and just putting together all of the already existing, uh, you know, standards of compliance. I think that is brilliant, actually. You know, so I'm happy to I'm happy to hear that this is where we are. Now, let me ask this. You've already explained the the good movement process. And, uh, you know, you you alluded to that. It's a three character, you know, number movement process. Yeah. GMP. Right, right, right. You've allowed us to understand that each one of those are going to be uh, designated a certain three-digit number to say where the status is. What obstacles do you see in getting buy-in in the global economy, you know, to even follow the goods movement process? So that's a great question. We, you know, we, we looked always in standards work to identify what work has been done before. And EDI X12 and EDI uh, uh has several different versions of of how it's deployed over time, but there are things that people have adopted and you don't want to leave that behind because people have legacy information inside of there. Those EDI standards, those EDI codes are three-digit codes. And what's interesting is that when, when I was actually developing the patent was I was aware of those EDI codes and referenced them in the patent as being at these milestone steps because it's typically where an EDI happens. You have an advanced shipment notification or a load tender or an update of status or a tender accept or all of those statuses are are kind of in ranges that correlate to the 300 or to the three digit field structure. So we've kind of created a table that lays out the 000 uh, first available code and the ED uh, to the 999 and gone next to it with the EDI codes so that we don't have any overlap. So, so that we make sure that, that they run 
alongside of the existing standards for the things that have been codified for communication before. But what we really think is going to happen is that the milestone steps that are in the ISO standard are there to be able to really frame the whole issue. This is about the identifier. ISO standards are, you, you, you get a license for the standard by going to ISO and downloading it directly from their site. You pay ISO for what the standard is. So those that help to develop it, we don't get paid any money to be able to do it. It's just they saw there was an opportunity to be able to, to develop a framework that would be applicable across a global scale. But there's a term that ISO is, is called a Standards Development Organization, an SDO. And SDOs are certified by the government as being that they have standards that they're following of the rules that they're going to use to, to, to create the standards and the work that they're doing. And those SDOs are rare. One of them is ISO. One of them is ASTM. ASTM is, is the uh, American Tech, Technology Measures uh, Committee. Uh, and, and they've changed the name a little bit. It's not actually the American anymore. It's now an international standards body as well. But they are looking between the gaps of the goods movement process statuses because they want to define the standard steps between picked up and delivered, between delivered and invoiced, between invoiced and archived, between posted and booked. You know what I'm saying? There's there's micro steps that happen between the major steps that really can be communicated along with the identifier, but the parties that are helping to move, that are servicing the customer to move this, they might need additional information that's added at the end of the goods movement process. And at that point, it's just flat data. So if somebody needed to know the GPS locations and who updated that data and when it was updated, the status update would be appended with TUID and the number 500 as it's in transit, but following the 512 update that was taking place after it left, it would have a time and date stamp and who updated it. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so I hear all these parts and how things are aligning together. Now, how does that equate to reducing or eliminating the phantom load posts on the load board. So the way that we think this all starts is that people start demanding their TUID. TUIDs are available on every shipment. They're able to be created naturally just by the fact that you know when it's available and where it's starting and where it's going to and who it's going to. You can make a TUID for every shipment that you move but having a standardized way to be able to do it and asking trading partners to provide it to you this way is the same as saying, are you ISO 9000 compliant? ISO 8000 compliant is based off of portable quality master data. And that's really what we're talking about is computers being able to accept the quality of the data from the source so that it can act on the information and not have uh, garbage, phantom data that's, that's, that's polluted around the outside of it with inaccuracies. So if you were looking at the same shipment from the same customer as I was, because you picked it up from one load board, your TUID number for that shipment and my TUID number for that shipment are exactly the same. And when the status changes on it, the networked effect of the companies that are communicating the updated statuses on TUIDs, which are the digital freight matching marketplaces and the 
connected ecosystem of providers are the ones that are cleaning this data. That they're doing this almost like with Intel inside. They're communicating in, in like computer language code between the servers. And the result is that everybody gets a better experience because these networks, network participants don't share garbage, they clean garbage. Gotcha. So let me put it in more layman's term, and I'm going to use some load board names. Let's just say the big boys. We have DAT, we have Truck Stop, and, you know, whoever else you want to throw up there. They actually have to put it into their system where they would be able to get these TUIDs and understand what those statuses meant before they would be the ones cleaning up, or would there be a third party who was designed to actually understand what the updates are with the TUIDs and then they be the ones to clean up the load board post. So you, you do a great job asking questions. The, the, the solution that we've actually constructed about two years ago was a, a instrument that was similar to a blockchain from the way that it needed to message, but in, to, to create the security, Nobody wants to turn their data over to me or to anybody else to be able to do it. So we actually deployed our solution in a GitHub repo where you can basically go and download the repository and deploy it inside of your own environment and it runs alongside of your system. You don't have to change anything. It's simply a mapping of where do you, what do you call it when you get it posted? What do you call it when it, and it's a mapping of what data fields go to which data fields. And we have a platform that enables the users to be able to do that, where they simply identify, here's the milestone steps, and here's the data fields that I'm going to transmit. And it, it converts their custom form into the standard, and then from the standard to the, the communication layer of everybody else that captures that ID. Okay. Well, look, I don't want to oversimplify that, but would you consider that something like a plugin? So it's very similar to a plugin. It's just, it's got enough meat to it so that if you were the DATs or the truck stops and you were moving millions of updates per day of what is actually taking place on status changes of these shipments, you would need a larger server than being just a plugin. If you were a small player that was just transmitting a couple of transactions on a weekly basis, a Raspberry Pi on your desk would do the same thing for you. You don't need to have the robustness of the communication layer because in a typical sort of blockchain solution, everybody is storing the data locally and this doesn't do that. This communicates the, the identifiers and looks to see if you, you have that identifier and if it does, it passes the update to you. If you don't have that identifier, then it just goes right past you and says, well, that's, you don't have that phone number. Okay, okay. Transitioning or pivoting just a bit to efficiency matters. You said that any shipper can create a TUID, TUIDs, which could potentially convolute what we should actually be focusing on. So the way that the TUID works is that it, it doesn't actually die. I mean, if, if, if a shipper creates the TUID and then cancels it, it still has a legacy of the fact that it was created, it was generated, and then it, it advanced to a status 99, where they said that they weren't looking for bids on it. And at that point, it would tell everybody that knew about it, this has advanced just to, to another point. But there's a key performance indicator that, that 
uh, opens itself up, Jory, as, so as soon as you, you get shippers that are creating these identifiers and saying, hey, this is my customer and their reference number who's ultimately going to get this, that they're sharing that advanced shipment notification with all parties that are to the transaction. That, that includes the posting to the load boards. So it's creating the identification of the shipment uh, the, identifying where it's coming from, where it's going to, just like you would type in the zip codes current day in a, a load board posting. But we've collected the the origin information from the mailing address and, and can simplify it down to post it as just what the zip code is. But the TUID uh, is in, in human readable form would illustrate what the origin and the destination and the time available was. It doesn't, unless it's in a status you know, posted looking for capacity, identify what the equipment type is. But but that's where it would be shared to the community of those that ex have expressed interest. Gotcha. Okay. 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 The information is available, right? It's a standard. I asked this to say, you know, criminals are getting smart, man, especially in this economy. You know, what would, how will we prevent the unsavories from hijacking the shipment once they learn of the contents by way of this identifier is that possible like you know high volume or excuse me high value cargo being shipped continuously utilizing kind of the same uh, no you're you're it's a great point it's a super point you know it's kind of like when you when you insure your mail uh, and you just do a general insurance that goes in the safe handling side. If you, you identified it as having $10,000 worth of insurance for it, all of a sudden it's a flag for everybody to say, hey, wait, this is something I want to be able to steal. Uh, in our case, the, the, the hashing of the TUID is what makes it so that you don't know whose shipment that it is. That layer of, of determining uh, who the, the, the shipping party or who the receiving party is becomes completely obscured when you run it through a hash. It just makes it so that it's now just basically a random set of numbers that are uh, can or, or but don't have to be able to be reconverted back. It's really the, the, the use case that you're talking about here is one that we have in our examples and in our edge cases. Um, you know, when, when you develop software, it's one of the things that you do is you, you look for how would this use case apply to use the, the the transport unit identifier? And standards go through an evolution process where it is really intended to be the give and take of industry, hearing what the standard is and doing applications and and pilots and projects with that where they say, hey, this is missing, we need to have this also. And the standard is fluid. And that's why there's technical committees and working groups inside of the official standards development organizations because it has to have some rigor to it. It has to go through some trials and to be able to have people try to blow holes in it. And the idea of standards is to be able to to withstand that and to be able to say, I've, I've listened to all the complaints from everybody and, and I've heard them and they've been incorporated in. So it's a very collaborative process. And I mean, all of your listeners are all welcome to be able to go to, to the ASTM website and look up the committee F49. And that's the place where, where work is being done around those micro steps between the standards and the membership for ASTM, I think, is $75 a year, and you can participate in any of the currently developing standards that they're working on. 
the, the ISO and the, the technical committee is a little different. They're actually organized around countries and countries then have liaisons and liaisons then have subject matter expert groups and those subject matter expert groups collaborate to group to vote for each country and then the country's votes are what move the ISO standard along, which is why it's really, it's the gold standard. The, the ISO standard side of things is where you, you've, you've put it out to the most number of global countries that you can seeking their feedback and commentary before you tried to be able to make it a full standard. Right. And, you know, anybody listening to this who has uh, worked in corporate America, I'm pretty sure that there is some type of standard governing safety, compliance, something that was uh, developed and uh, put out by the ISO. So, uh, again, I appreciate you for just making it a very, very relevant to how we can uh, think about it right now. Well, it's a global space, right, Jory? And especially when you're talking about international trade. I mean, one, one of the things that, you know, you and I talked about that first time we met was the Federal Maritime Commission. Mm-hmm. And the Federal Maritime Commission has, you know, a year ago, just the anniversary was, uh, I think, five days ago of their one year anniversary of passing the Ocean Shipping Reform Act. And the Ocean Shipping Reform Act doesn't just cover the maritime movement of, of from port to port. It now covers the marine terminal operations, internal movements, and their movements out to to the yard and to the drayage provider, and from the drayage provider to the rail, and from the rail to the drayage provider that brings it to the final customer. And um, that that's an extension beyond what's been there before, and it's a different type of regulation. But I think it's really curious for the time that we're in right now that standards on a global basis and regulations on a country basis are are somewhat aligning. I mean, you're seeing Singapore and Australia and the EU and the, the UN are all talking about global trade initiatives and needing standardized identifiers and ways to communicate. And I, I think that's where the standards bodies are really going to shine. Right. I mean, well, I think technology is what we have to thank for that. You know, the technology has made everybody our neighbor. <laughs> that's right. It's not a barrier anymore to be able to connect. It's it's truly just about, you know, and your point is, is about vulnerability is really spot on. And I want to just take a minute to, to kind of zero in on this. I mentioned the ALEI and the ALEI Every company that is a authorized company that has gone to the Secretary of State and requested that to form a business, they get a control number. And the control number that's issued by the Secretary of State is it's your control number. It's like your birth certificate. And every company and in every country around the world uses some mechanism to create a control number for that entity that they know about who they are because they're going to be conducting commerce. And that identity then gets these proxy identities that are put on top of it, like a SCAT code or an MC number or an EIN number. And all of those really should root to reference the authoritative legal entity identifier. If they did, then you would know when someone's business was formed, who the officers are, and that would be embedded into the reference library of 
who this company is and how they conduct business. And that's part of the ISO standards of visualizing how the world will ultimately interact by uh, knowing who your supply chain partners are by an identity that is resolvable to a directory of companies. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. I love it, man. We talked about the goods movement process, the GMP and just those status and how it can let everybody know where we are in the process. Imagine the loads that get booked, but then the, the carrier falls off or, you know, maybe there's a something else that happens while en route. Right. He, he blew out a tire. The, the driver uh, needed service and they, they got to get a replacement truck. Yeah, something like that. Is that type of stuff being able to be communicated as well? Or is it more of the, you know, we're, we're booked and we're in route? So that's the work that, that ASTM is doing. The ASTM okay. F49 group is looking for all of those edge cases of I'm an owner operator. I just have my own truck here. Oh, darn. I got a flat tire, but I got a customer that's expecting this. How do I retender? this shipment from my side of the road location to another carrier and acknowledge that to the shipper and that's making a new TUID. It's a new shipment from that side of the road to the other and it completes his responsibility at one place. But we have to collect those user cases. We, we need to hear all of those edge cases. So on our website, uh, dfmdata.com, there is a, a join uh, button that's there and there's some checkboxes there that if you wanted to be able to create a use case or submit a use case for consideration by the committees, that's the place to be able to do it. We, we accept those and add them to the stories that are uh, examples that have come up from previous conversations. And the, the more rugged we are with going through those examples, the, the better the standard is in a, a faster time frame. So we, we welcome the, the rigor and the challenge to, to how it's put together. Right. No, I love that. You know, it makes me think about just even the expedite world. Like, how will this apply to things that are you know, kind of last second shipment? So that's part of maybe those tests that can submit it. So I think you're right. And, and part of, you know, what happens with this identifier of when am I saying that it's first available? And then when are we committing to an appointment? That appointment becomes part of the change log for that TUID, right? So if we now say what it was first going to be available at 10 o'clock this morning, but your truck was dispatched to be here this afternoon. And then we got an appointment schedule for 4 p.m. You're not late until 6 Right. So the scheduled appointment for that and what the TUID said is when it was first available, the TUID never changes. It's what the first order was. What changed afterwards is part of what makes up the changes that happen in the just the dynamics of servicing the movement of goods. And if there's additional services that are required and they're documented correctly, there's opportunity to be able to to recover those costs and to, to do so with some transparency. And I think the exceptions that you're talking about being able to be addressed inside of ASTM, um, you know, we have 128 of these exceptions that we, we've reviewed so far. So it, it's, uh, like I said, I welcome more of these, these, uh, these stories and edge cases of, of, you know, what happens when the driver does this? And we have to be able to answer for those. So it's, it's a, a great opportunity for the feedback circle. All right, man. Just in that statement, I have so many things firing, so many synapses of just uh, remembering my time working in a warehouse environment and just how 
the folks who were loading the truck. Uh, they might have been able to work a, a driver in that was late to their appointment. And, you know, maybe they're even backed up and just how they're just trying to get the product onto the trailers and, you know, what that really looks like if we're talking about keeping uh, everybody updated. Like, what does that even require of that that loader, that person that's loading the trucks, um, you know, to make this, this system all work together? So, so Jory, I played team sports my whole life, and I look at every shipment like a new game. And I don't know who my players are going to be yet, but each person that gets involved in it along the way, they're on my team. And if we can speak the same language and we can make eye contact with each other to be able to pass the ball, we do much more, more effectively than if we have to figure out the language barrier between each communication. And that's what we're trying to do is level the playing field so that everybody that's servicing that end customer with their portion of handling those goods knows that they're responsible and liable and, and, and accountable, well, not liable, but accountable for doing the, what they committed to be able to do and what was part of the agreement. Okay. Yeah, no, I feel that, man. Would this process, would this standardization affect the factoring process as we know it today? So as we know it today, there's a, you know, everybody knows there's a big gap between the time that you get a signed clear bill of lading and the time that an invoice gets cut, the time that it gets mailed and I have the original copies and before I even start to be able to begin affecting payment or I got to pay a, an extra fee to be able to settle quickly by being able to work through a factor. I really think that this world that is going from a batch process system of these steps were completed throughout the day, let me update what happened to being a real-time communication system will enable what I like to consider micropayments, where when, when the, the Dre driver moves it from the MTO's location to the, the, the rail yard and it was a 12-mile move, he shouldn't wait 38 days to be able to get paid for that move. You know, it's, they moved so many of them. We know when it took place, it was a micro port of the transaction and that service really should be able to be settled much closer to the time that it takes place. What's missed in the past is the availability of the documentation to be able to provide that. The FMCSA, uh, you know, OIDA comment saying that, Heck, with today's technology, we could demand to be able to have that availability within 48 hours after every transaction. That really means that the, the, the purchase to cash cycle really should shrink dramatically. And the factoring businesses, um, I, I, I don't know if moving money is going to, to be the lucrative business going, going through established rails when we have better peer-to-peer -peer and tokenization of transactions in the trucking world. Okay, look, we've covered a lot of things, and I know that uh, a lot of stuff is uh, a work in progress. Is there anything that we did not cover that would be relevant to how we're to accomplish this goal of eliminating future phantom lowboard posts? So uh, I'll, I'll share with you that, that the, the place that we've had a lot of feedback from of where to be able to start this is like a, an ecosystem that has a known set of suppliers and a known set of customers. It, that's how ISO 9000 kind of grabbed its, its lead, what was for entities to be able to say, look, I, I want the quality data coming in and out of my system. I don't want to take any trash anymore. And before I will do business with you, I want to know that you understand what it means to transmit quality data. And 
when, when you, you seek to qualify your suppliers and your ecosystem and your, uh, your network, you establish a set of expectations that people can meet or not meet. And if they can't meet them, then they may not meet your standards of what you're looking to be able to work with. If they can meet them, then your quality of data in and out of your platform is going to reduce headcount and improve your overall operating efficiency. I love it. I love it, brother. I love it. I love it. You know, I perused your LinkedIn and for the past couple of decades, man, you have founded and or co-founded several companies. Like, what does the word entrepreneur mean to you? And like, do you consider yourself an entrepreneur or do you just think that you're seeing a need and you're addressing it? So, you know, the, I, this is something I've been chasing for a long time with the, the, the freight matching components of this. I mean, I, I wrote my first white paper on this in 2003 um, of kind of how I thought this was going to come together in the first draft of the patent was written in 2004. That's three years before the iPhone came out. Um, so I, I've been thinking about this for a long time. I'll, I'll tell you that after I built the first digital freight matching environment and i had you know a and p as my as my, my grocery customer and they introduced me upstream to their vendors and i got into a lot of dry goods and and water movements and coca-cola and you know other uh large chains that wanted to gain the same sort of access to to the the capacity i i've uh recognized that things move slower than than you you want them to um you know, my, my goal of being an entrepreneur in, in the trucking industry was, was really about the fact that I, I had an idea and uh, I saw a way early on to use the internet and um, entrepreneurship is hard. And, and, and you know, I, I've had a couple of entrepreneurs that I've met throughout my life that have said that you become like unemployable entrepreneurs once you've had a success because nobody wants to hire you. That They know that you're you're ultimately looking to be able to to fix something or solve something that you're very motivated to be able to do um and that tireless dedication to something is is really what what makes an entrepreneur it's a succeed at no no uh no barriers too big to be able to overcome and no hurdles gonna get in your way that's gonna get you to to get off of your game and uh, i think when people see that that commitment to what you're what you're working on eventually they 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 go so let me let me take a closer look here because uh you, you've worked on this for 30 years i mean what what what, what what's the gain here and I, I look at this industry as a a trillion dollar brokerage industry or a trillion dollar truckload industry here in, in north america and um the digitization of this industry has the ability to be able to carve out percentage points of waste in the marketplace and uh those percentage points make a big difference when you're talking about numbers of that size oh definitely definitely i mean i'm not gonna lie to you brother i'm thinking about your your journey thinking about uh what area of the industry you are looking to impact and the fact that you are going into this we clarified it's not necessarily a plug-in but it's a route where you can easily integrate what you got going on into somebody's existing system it gives me p44 vibes 
You well, we, that's right. It, it's almost an anti P44 though, because I'm not looking to take in your data and normalize it. I'm going to give you something that allows you to normalize it. And okay. I'm not, I'm not requiring that you give me all your data. I'm going to provide you with a tool that allows you to standardize that data in a way that you can see exactly how it's being safeguarded before it's transmitted. And I don't do the transmission. You do. You're just using an instrument that we helped create that allows you to get a dial tone to make the phone call. Right, right. So basically, man, integrating, just making it to a spot where it's undeniable that the services are helping the industry. So um, I'm definitely rooting for you, my guy. Definitely rooting for you. Um, and look, because you've seen so many cycles of business, you know, as a founder and a co-founder, you know, I think that you might have a unique perspective. And I wanted to ask you this. What would you say that you've learned from shutting down a company's operation that maybe has strengthened you when you were, you know, next at bat for your next situation? So that's a really good question. I, I had a company called A Deeper View that I, I had built after I built the first digital freight matching company, and it was built to be able to help individuals with autism uh, have what we called portfolio learning, where it was individualized for their needs and able to collect data to determine where they were making progress and where teaching might be modified to be able to provide a better result. And it was a very big passion project for me. I have two boys that have autism and uh, I worked on this initiative for uh, about 11 years. And when I, I got really focused on working on the DFM data stuff, I had to put that project aside and, uh, and kind of close it down so that it was not taking up, up, up any more of my time. But the, it was interesting because the experimentation of being able to provide that sort of data visibility to the education market was very telling. Um, you know, people have a tendency to weaponize data if they don't understand it. And uh, one of the things that, that we really, you know, aim to do here is to utilize the data to empower good decisions and not to be able to, to point out bad decisions that cause grief to the users. You ultimately want to be able to help uh, help the users gain productivity and, and have value from their use of your application all the way through and uh, not, not, not weaponize the, the technology. Man, well, look, happy belated Father's Day. I just celebrated my very first this past weekend. Congratulations. I remember you telling me that you were about to be uh, have, bringing a, a new baby boy into the world, if I remember. Uh, yep, yep. You know, so my, my weekend was amazing, man. I, I, I really enjoyed it. You know, I didn't have too much expectation going into it, but I was taken care of. So I was, I was really appreciative to uh, my wife and my family. Uh, I got my family is not in Georgia. <laughs> Let me just say that everybody in my family is typically from the Northeast. Um, but my son got to meet some family for the first time from my side, my, my wife's family, her old family's here. So um, where in the Northeast are you from? Uh, well, born in Brooklyn, but I was raised in North Carolina. Uh, but my family as of right now, they're still in New York, but also in the Pennsylvania area. So Allentown and all that kind of stuff right outside of Philly. Um, so yeah, so I used to hang out there in Reading, right around the corner there from Allentown, and okay. I, I grew up in Long Island, New York. So we, okay. we have we, we've crossed some same same turf before. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, yeah, yeah. No, I definitely I've heard about Reading just by way of my uncles who live up there. Uh, they run. I mean, he's a he's a truck driver, so he's he's all over 
um, the Lehigh Valley area. Absolutely, so, yeah. That's that's yeah. the spot. Yes, sir. Look, are you? I mean, we're getting down to the last questions here, but I also saw that you used to play racquetball. Are you still a player? So I, I blew my knee out a couple of years ago, but I'd still find myself on a on a racquetball court if I had a good game around. I I love the game. It's uh, um, a, a great sweat for sure. Do yes, you play? Sir. You know, I so in college, right? Yeah. Racquetball took over as my number one sport. It used to be basketball, but racquetball is definitely number one in my heart today. Now it's been years since I played. I'm not gonna lie to you. Uh, my the the folks who I used to play with, they moved away. Um, they're on the West Coast, so not as many regular matches. But so, what do you, you know, think of this pickleball phase? I mean, I feel like it's a little bit like slow motion racquetball with with on a, a miniature tennis court. You know, I, I'm for it. You know, if, if it makes people happy, I haven't played myself so far, but I've seen a lot of people get a lot of enjoyment from it. And I'm talking about all ages. So. I'm with you, man. I, I think that's probably the next thing that I'm going to look to be able to do is find, find a little pickleball activity. I, I, I think it's uh, it's picked up and it seems like, uh, you know, anybody can really be successful at it. And, and uh, it's cool, man. It's good to be able to see people out and active again after being locked in the house for, for COVID for, for the years that we were. Exactly, exactly. Well, look, man, we're definitely going to have to follow up. We're both in the Atlanta area, so we might catch our first game together because, like I said, I've yet to play. Um, you know, for the folks who are listening in, they want to learn more and they want to participate and help out. Uh, where would you send them to learn more information? DFMdata.com. DFMdata.com. All right, all right. Well, look, I appreciate you again, brother. Uh, we're going to be closing out right now. Was there anything that you wanted to say before we ended tonight's session? Only that I appreciate you and your follow-up of being able to introduce me here to Clubhouse and uh, to, to your audience. And uh, I hope that the, the, the podcast was everything that you wanted it to be. I, I enjoyed another stimulating conversation with you, my friend. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, look, man, uh, you got my number. Anytime I can help, I'm, I'm happy to do so. Everybody else, I appreciate y'all for tuning in. Um, you know, to find these bad boys, you can definitely visit the website, which is transportationandlogistics.club. You know, you can find all the sessions there, or you can go to uh, Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast, and you can locate it there as well. Um, next week, tune in on Monday as we partner up with Freight Waves. We are going to be discussing where you should position your trucks to take advantage of the market. And who am I interviewing next week? Um, hmm, what's the session going to be about next week? Um, all right, so next week. All right, yeah, so this brother right here, he has a cool idea. We're going to have Evan Shelley, who is the uh, truck parking club guy who is uh, basically allowing different businesses across the United States to um, offer truck parking, you know, at their established businesses. So um, it's just it's just one of the ways that uh, one young entrepreneur is attacking the trucking shortage uh, situation here in America. So we're going to be talking to that brother next week. And uh, everybody, again, be blessed. And Michael, have a blessing, brother. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. I appreciate it, buddy.